You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is co-host David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Uh, Giles, I'm well. I trust our audience as well and in, uh, enjoying some uh, winter weather that we have here in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, I guess uh, it's you and I, Giles, uh, 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 ruminating on on what's been uh, an interesting week or so in Australia, particularly on the political scene. And I guess globally, the technology scene keeps moving along. I hope we get a chance to talk about offshore wind very briefly, uh, which was the fastest growing sector by far of uh, renewable generation. But uh, what do you think we should talk about, Giles? Oh, look, there's so much to talk about. Look, we we, we did um, nearly have some interviews. Um, and um, look, I may, may still squeeze a, a later one. But look, we're going to work on the assumption that we're not having an interview, but there's plenty to talk about. One thing I do want to say right at the start of the um, episode, though, is to welcome a new sponsor, new co-sponsor to this um, to this podcast, which is Pylon, who provides sort of services and design services um, for solar installations and things like that. So we welcome them on board and they will be joining Evergen. And I just want to say thank you very much for Solaray Energy, who have been or had been with us right from the start, who basically sort of helped fund this program. Um, it's almost three years now. And um, we just really appreciate their support. And um, look, we still may have some involvement um, with them in um, possibly the EV space and to get the driven pass going again, because um, both the principles of uh, that solar company have electric cars and pretty excited in that. And uh, one of the interesting things about this um, new sort of tech transition is that uh, we're thinking more about solar and EVs and houses and distributed energy and how all that fits together, which will probably be sub part of our conversation today. Um, so look, just, just once again, welcome to Pylon. Thank you very much for Solar Energy and also thanks to Evergen for keeping on going. But look, look, there's quite a lot to sort of talk about last week. Um, a lot of things happening in the kind of um, political and institutional space. And it's kind of interesting. I guess we, I guess the best first place to start is with the quarterly energy dynamics report, which came out from AEMO, which was uh, quite interesting. It's been proves now to be a fascinating reference point for what happened in the previous three months because it gives you details which may not have been completely uh, visible beforehand. The big takeout, though, was that um, um, renewables obviously um, increased, it pushed coal out of the way, it brought prices down, and Hey, presto, it also brought emissions down um, to a record low since the creation of the national electricity market. And I guess the fascinating thing about this was the statement from um, Minister Angus Taylor, who sort of said, oh, well, the prices are down, all thanks very much to our big stick tech, um, our big stick um, incentives um, policy, which I don't think is quite true. Um, and the emissions for emission reduction, or sorry, the Minister for Emissions Reduction made absolutely no mention of the emissions reduction, which I thought was a bit disappointing. Uh, well, you know, it was no surprise to us, uh, most of the things uh, to us at ITK, that uh, most of the things, because, uh, you know, we've even written about them. And in fact, more recently, I think the actual, uh, it's been a slightly disappointing performance, uh, basically since the end of the June quarter, 
from variable renewable energy, wind and solar. Its, its share is down at 15%, but there's no doubt that the big feature has been the fall in electricity prices, which is partly due to the increase in renewables, but also, as everyone knows, due to the reduction in coal price and the uh, reduction in gas price. And in fact, the coal prices, uh, electricity prices have fallen so far that gas is not even the marginal price setter necessarily all the time anymore. It, it becomes a question of the, the squeeze on coal. And I think that, uh, Giles, leads nicely into a forum that the CEC uh, held this week, which uh, your, uh, Michael Mazengrab, have I pronounced Michael's surname correctly? <laughs> not, <coughs> excuse, me for, <coughs> excuse me for coughing. Um, no, not quite. My, Michael Mazengrab. Michael Mazengarb, and he he uh, reported on that seminar. Uh, and for those that haven't read the story, uh, Kerry Schott, uh, who's the head of the ESB, said that actually said that she didn't think the ESB should continue once it's done its current work, whatever that work is. But I, I think that's going to go on for quite a while myself. And perhaps even more interestingly, we had some comments from Ben Barr, who is the new head of the AEMC. And I've had a problem with the AEMC for some years. Uh, and so it was uh, very pleasing, I think, or encouraging to hear him say that two things are happening at the same time, two fundamental changes to the market. By 2040, all of the fossil fuel generators will probably be gone. I mean, when the head of the AEMC uh, is, is saying that, uh, you know that the rules will be made uh, with that in mind, and that that itself is a very encouraging thing. And he went on well, to say, "I hope so." Yes, <laughs> go on. <laughs> uh, uh, at, at the distributed level, uh, you've got this transformation will change as well, where solar PV, EVs, uh, and how customers engage is heading. And Barr added that an important ongoing challenge will be the management of the grid integration of renewables. And he said, "I think we've done pretty badly to date with how we've integrated distributed energy." Uh, so I, I think, and when you look at the rule changes that they're looking at, which is ones I've been focused on are things for like uh, fast frequency markets and things, which which you know are going to favour the newer technologies, specifically batteries. Uh, not that they've adopted those rule changes yet. Uh, I, I I find as a I've been hoping to hear some words like this. Of course, you've got to see what it actually means in terms of rules, but. Uh, I, I am optimistic at the moment, uh, more than I have been for a little while. Yes, look, I'd have to agree on that. Um, so both the AEMC and the ESB were talking about this transition happening because, as um, Kerry Schott put it, there was an economic case for to do so. And interestingly, she saw no technical impediments to it happening. And basically, she and the rulemaker agree that the rules and the regulations have got to catch up, um, catch up which um, I agree with you. That's, uh, that's a tremendous um, step forward. I guess one of the interesting things is that um, we're not getting much clarity from the minister as usual the ESB doesn't even know or Kerry Schott doesn't even know whether her contract will get continued um, beyond next month um, now you would have thought that um, she would because the ESB has quite an important role to play in gathering all the institutions together at least to sort of you know manage and lead this redesign of the market rules which everyone says is absolutely fundamental Charles I, 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 I think her contract will get extended to, because the states are all pretty much said they're going to and I don't believe Angus Taylor can just overrule estates like that I, I he'll prove me wrong uh, but uh, that's 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 really where I've got to and I agree there's a really big job and you know I'm concerned that there are so many rule changes going on 
And they're all, many of these rule changes have been made in isolation. They're not been made as part of a, a plan. I keep comparing what we're doing to, you know, like a, a big battle, like the landing of D-Day on Normandy or something like that, you know, which is probably a bit uh, uh, a bit over the top. But uh, just, just a bit. <laughs> but, uh, but it, you know, then all the details fit into the bigger scheme so that, you know, people at every level follow uh, – work on what they have to do and everyone knows how all the parts of the machine come together but when all these rule changes happen in isolation and i think there's 300 rule changes are uh, being listed at the AEMC and obviously not focusing on them all someone at the cec told me that they're looking at 70 working on 75 submissions at the moment it's too much it is too much and a lot of these things are actually going to be interim changes anyway because the whole complete rules will be rewritten for 2025 anyway. But um, look, just getting back to the um, ESB, and look, Kerry Schott is clearly frustrated that she hasn't been told yet whether her contract's going to be renewed. Now, maybe the states have said that would be the case, but why not actually just make it absolutely clear that this is going to happen? Otherwise, we're going to say the, see the same sort of thing that we're seeing with ARENA. Now, it was extraordinary this week. I mean, the ARENA board expired, um, the appointments expired on Friday, and no one was told, no one knew anything last week. Even the existing directors didn't even know whether they're going to have their contracts extended. And in the end, it was announced at the last minute. And um, so it turns out that Angus Taylor has um, appointed an old skiing buddy, uh, Justin Punch, to be chair. Now, that actually turns out to be quite a good appointment, a lot of people say, because people who do know him say he's actually fully involved in the climate and environment space. He's a good guy. Um, he understands this. But um, once again, sort of you know, tempting to see a jobs for the boys. And then we see on Friday, quite late in the day, the other two directors are appointed and it turns out to be Angus Taylor's former advisor, the uh, former Deutsche Bank analyst, John Hergy, who um, he was an, the energy advisor. He used to be a competitor of mine, Giles. He's a competitor of mine uh, in, the, in the ratings. All of us brokers competed. We, we might be mates uh, uh, in the same way that uh, football teams have mates, but uh, uh, he was a competitor. And uh, yes, uh, anyway, it's yes. interesting. Yeah, and then the other the other new appointment was the um, co-founder of BA Economics, um, which is um, the uh, the Liberal Party's favourite think tank, and has um, produced um, well, what is undoubtedly just a, an extraordinary series of um, analyses. Um, it's been anti-renewables right from the start, and um, this person was um, a vocal critic of the renewable energy target, and BA Economics produced that report before the election last year, which was just sheer nonsense about you know, the potential cost of going renewable. So interestingly, that at the same time as we've got the main institutions, we've got Kerry Shot, we've got the AMC, and of course, we already know that AEMO see the same thing. We've got an economic and technology-driven reason to have a transition, we now have appointed to the board of ARENA someone who argued exactly the opposite just over a year ago. So um, quite extraordinary. And it just shows that um, we are still seeing these incredible blockages everywhere. So w we have this pathway. We know where we need to head. We kind of know how to get there. We've got to sort out the details. But we've just been sort of hit with these hurdles at, um, at every turn. And it's, um, it's very frustrating. And Yes, Giles. And in fact, the transition to very high renewables penetration uh, is not quite as... There is no fundamental impediment, but there's an awful lot of work that's got to be done to make it work. And just to remind everyone, we've got to sort out the system control issues. Uh, that's a whole stream of work. And we, we hope to talk more about that on this podcast in, in the future. Uh, we have to make sure that uh, the lights stay on. And that means having enough dispatchable capacity 
uh, and it means building new capacity in front of the coal stations closing down and that would uh, work much better if we had a policy at the top uh, and we have to make sure the right amount of transmission is there whatever the right amount of transmission is and uh, we've still got problems with the RIT test uh, around that and you know we've had the South Australian interconnector held up for six months beyond when it was uh, originally approved under the RIT rules because it's got to go through another test and I understand that every six months it's held up costs uh, consumers mostly in South Australia 50 million dollars so that's uh, bad luck, guys. You're losing a million a week. But I mean, compared to the submarines, that's trivial, of course, and uh, everything else. But still, it's, it's, it's money that, that you're not going to get back. Uh, so there are actually a lot of challenges. And this is where uh, the problem at the top level of politics really becomes important, because uh, I think there's a lot of agreement uh, uh, at the state level, more or less agreement or a willingness to, to work on these issues. Most of the states can see it's in their self-interest to do that either politically or economically. But at the federal level, the biggest block of votes in the current government comes from Queensland. And Queensland uh, Liberal Nationals are the most anti uh, uh, or the most pro-coal, put it that way, and therefore they're anti-renewables. Uh, they are the most anti-group and they're the biggest block of the current government. And so it's natural that the government reflects that voting voting block. And, and the, that's the problem. You know, we've got a, a great machine going around without a head. Mm, yeah. Well, it was interesting to note, actually, um, last week, I think the uh, there was an energy debate hosted by Solar Citizens, the advocacy group, and it had the energy minister and the uh, putative state energy, um, or the opposition um, energy spokesman in Queensland, because, of course, they've got an election coming up in October. And um, they rejected the idea that there would be any state funding for a coal-fired generator in, in North Queensland. So um, quite an interesting one there. And um, there's actually been some interesting reporting from The Guardian um, about um, Shine Energy, which is this company... Which which is supposedly supposedly going to get the funding to do the feasibility study for this thing in Collinsville. I mean, you and I know it's never going to happen, and it's just a dumb idea. But the fact that we're even talking about it and they're going through the motions is just ridiculous. But, um, I mean, it is a farce from woe to go and just so indicative of just how, you know, um, a sensible transition is sort of um, hijacked at every opportunity. Um, look, another little um, interesting thing, David, that came up um, last week was um, now look um, was was solar thermal rearing its head again, and um, look, we had lots of discussions about the solar thermal proposal in Port Augusta, and I must say that um, you, I was very very enthusiastic about it. Really wanted to see it succeed. I guess I've seen a solar thermal plant work, and um, they're wonderful looking things. But um, they're actually quite hard to do, quite expensive, and the machinery is a little bit complicated. And uh, you. Um, in retrospect, express some quite justified scepticism. But look, the interesting story here is Vast Solar, which is an Australian company. Um, solar thermal, so basically a whole bunch of mirrors, a receiver stuck on top of a tower, a transfer heating fluid that sort of stores that energy. They've got a slightly different system. Instead of having one big tower, you have lots of smaller towers and so a modular setup. And they're thinking of taking this technology to Mount Isa. They're going to combine it with solar PV and batteries, uh, which will provide the bulk of the thing during the day. The solar thermal will store during the day and then be used at night, and they're admitting that they will need gas back up to, up to about 15%. It's a 50-megawatt baseload plant. It costs $600 million, which sounds like an awful bloody lot. doesn't sound much like a bargain to me, but they insist that it will be cheaper than the alternative. And I guess Mount Isa is an interesting possibility for them 
because one, it is an isolated grid. It is currently served by gas, a huge gas line that's um, a couple of thousand kilometers and it's really, really expensive. So it's probably one of the best markets with some big potential customers in that area um, competing at quite high prices. So I'm not too sure what you make of it, um, David. I mean, Vast Solar have had a very small plant running up Gemalong for about one and a half megawatts. It's been going for a couple of years. They say that's been going well. It's um, They've learned a lot from it, which presumably means they've had a few issues and they've refined things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they actually get funding for it, because in the end, that is what undid the... Um, the Crescent Dunes proposal from of the Solar Reserve proposal in Port Augusta. Yes, so the um, the Crescent Dunes one, um, as Keith Lifegrove often points out, it was just actually poor execution, um, uh, really, as much as the actual technical. I think there's no doubt that solar thermal works. Although I will say that uh, no one's yet decided on what the best way. I mean. That the, uh, just for readers, listeners who haven't uh, focused on this, the idea is that you actually run a conventional generator to produce the power uh, at night or whenever it is uh, using heat that's been stored during the day to run what is essentially a gas turbine. So, and, and that point one is that your efficiency is down to 50%. You know, you only 50% of the energy goes in is all that you're going to get out. Um, and then the question is, how do you get the heat into the into the salt or whatever the medium is that that um, uh, that you want? And at the moment, you can do it with mirrors, and those mirrors can either be into parabolic troughs, uh, or they can uh, reflect onto onto a tower. The biggest plant that's been built at the moment in um, Saudi Arabia, I think it is, or Abu Dhabi in the Middle East, in any case, a very, very expensive and very big plant is actually using some of each technology to test them out. Uh, so I think the and and most many of these plants have had technical issues of one sort or another. So it it, it takes a fair bit to make it happen. It's a lot of money, and uh, you, we'll have to see whether Vast is up to the challenge of financing it and getting it through. It's like all of these mega projects; uh, they're great, but they're not. They're extremely difficult to get done. I will say, and I've said several times that we, we do think I do think that the North Queensland energy resource in wind and solar is absolutely fantastic, as is the one in Tasmania. And uh, people who can find ways to get that resource uh, in, into the market are going to end up doing well uh, in, over time. So, and the other thing yes. is, Giles, I, I did, I, sorry, I, I also want to, I think I mentioned already at the outset of this podcast, I'm very excited about offshore wind, although I don't think it's going to be necessarily so important for Australia. It may be, but it's going to be fantastically important for the rest of the world. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've, it's the biggest uh, uh, amount of investment, uh, pretty much over 50 billion, I think, was committed US uh, during the half year um, to, to offshore wind around the world. So it, it's, it's really starting to become very important and something that uh, followers of the sector need to keep an eye on. But over to you. No, well, no, well, I think you're exactly right, actually, because the um, offshore wind, I think the price of offshore wind has come down dramatically, like about 50%, 60% just in the last two years. So I think, as you say, uh, a lot of the company, companies, in, countries in Europe, um, 
uh, looking for offshore wind as a more socially acceptable way of building wind power and possibly ultimately a cheaper way. Apparently, you get some extraordinary capacity factors out of some of those offshore wind um, uh, things, up to 60% or 70% or more. And a lot of them are thinking about this. Into, and, and so that's a, it's a good opportunity for Asia as well. Now, we always think of Asian countries as being sort of you know land poor in, in terms of having room for large-scale solar and um, onshore wind arrays. So offshore wind gives them an opportunity. It also gives them everyone an opportunity to think about this in terms of green hydrogen as well. So it's quite interesting. We've talked a lot about green hydrogen opportunities in Australia. And we I think last week we had another seven contracts sort of rolled out as being shortlisted for arena funding, which all sounded very nice. But these are small scale projects. And we're talking about in the tens of millions and, and things like that. Whereas we're seeing more and more now in Europe and in Asia, they're talking about the tens of billions, about the amount of money that they actually want to put towards the green hydrogen. And um, it's, um, it, it worries me that Australia may get left behind. I mean, Australia will always have its fantastic solar and wind resources, and maybe it will be a technology taker when somebody else manages to get the cost of electrolyzers down, then we simply install them there and use our resources. But um, it's certainly the case that Europe and Asia are very serious about this, and offshore wind will play an important part in that. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, I don't know that Australia has to develop its own hydrogen technology. I mean, it's not something that Australia's traditionally been very good at is brand new in, you know, engineering of that sort. I'd expect it to come out of Germany or, or Japan or China, uh, and then we'll just import it and use our cheap raw energy. That's what we always do. We're great at providing the raw materials. Uh, and there's nothing, oh, we no did, shame we did, in that. We did, no, we did. No, there's no shame in that, Giles. There's no shame in being brilliant at raw materials, right? By far the biggest successful companies on the stock market outside of the banks are Rio and BHP and, and, and Fortescue, who, who are absolute world beaters at uh, extracting rock out of the ground and, and selling it and, and, and dominating the market. There's no shame in that. It's a fantastic skill to have. No, absolutely not. But I would point out that we've, um, Australia's actually done pretty well in developing some of the key solar PV technologies and continue to oh, do have. so with the work at UNSW and elsewhere. So, you know, anyway. But um, I guess the point I wanted to make was that Australia seems to think that it's got the inside running on um, a renewable hydrogen. And that's not necessarily the case because Europe and Asia and to less extent America are also taking a pretty serious look at it as well. Um, for offshore wind, I think, I think, David, there's only about one proposal isn't there so far in Australia? The Star of the South proposal, I think it's offshore Victoria, offshore Gippsland, yes, I, I, it's about I mean, a 1.2 gigawatt project or something. Yeah. Yes, Giles. I mean, we've got plenty of land that uh, that's, has, a, has a good wind resource. We can get our best wind farms uh, capacity factors of 40%, whereas offshore wind, you're only going to get 50%. But if you're Japan uh, and you want to do offshore wind uh, and you want to do uh, renewable resources, which you do do for energy security, imagine the prize for Japan of having energy security itself for the first time in its whole history. Uh, then offshore wind offers that prospect in a way that uh, nothing except maybe nuclear did before. So, so this is great for them. And, uh, you know, we also see floating offshore wind uh, as a technology that's also just around the corner um, um, because where the, where the water is deeper. Most of the, you know, so offshore wind itself uh, divides into two fixed offshore wind in shallow water and uh, floating offshore wind, which is a technology that really is only just starting to happen. We've only got five and 10 megawatt uh, plants at that level yet, just the same as the hydrogen. But the sort of thought is that by within three or four years, we'll be able to do uh, you know, individual turbines of, uh, of uh, 10 megabytes, uh, uh, 10 megawatts rather. <laughs> um, so anyway, Giles, we've covered a, a lot of territory already. Um, uh, what, what else have we got? 
<laughs> um, look, I think um, I think we're going to keep it short this week. What do you reckon? Yes, I think we'll, we'll leave our uh, listeners to uh, get on with uh, other things. You know, hoping, uh, wishing all those people in Victoria uh, uh, well. You know, it's a uh, tough situation down there just at the moment. It certainly is. Okay, once again, thank you, David. Um, thanks to our listeners. Once again, thank you to our sponsors, Evergen, and our new sponsor, Pylon. Thanks once again to our departing sponsor, Solaray Energy, for your support over the last couple of years. I'd like to add in my uh, I'd like to add in my thanks to Solaray. As I've often mentioned, they did the panels on this house, and they've uh, worked an absolute treat over all the years. And you can't really say better than that. Well, there you go. A fine endorsement. Please leave a nice review or any sort of review on um, the Apple iTunes store and um, we'll be back again sometime soon. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.